I said, well, why don't we try an experiment? You two guys only come in once a week. Stay in Palm Springs every other day. We'll work by phone. We didn't even have Zoom back then. We just right. worked by phone and, uh, and email. And when people are going to go to the shop for a meeting, schedule the meetings whenever possible at the beginning or the end of the day. So your commute route takes you by the shop and you don't make that two hours of driving in the middle of the day on top of it. And something amazing happened. It took it took about a month for people to get used to this. You know, it was a, it was a change. But all of a sudden there was more laughter. All of a sudden people weren't so tired. All of a sudden people weren't putting in so much overtime to make up for the exhaustion that lost productivity during the week, you know. And, and that was a clue that this was working. Um, the other big clue is that we received a statewide award in California as a small business of the year for these emission, extraordinary emission reduction. And we issued a press release and two things happened. One, my biggest client called the next day and said, I, I'm calling to say how proud we are to work with a company that would choose to do what you did. That's great. Like, wow, you know, you nobody can buy advertising that good, right? No. The other thing is that the employees um, took took a new sense of ownership in the business and started looking for ways to enhance our environmental performance because all of a sudden coming to work was more meaningful than it had ever been to them. And we all hunger for a sense of purpose and a sense of mission in our lives, you know? Yeah. And so by providing this, it, it shows that there's this deep, deep wellspring of goodwill and desire to be solving these persistent, pernicious problems that we've been taught to believe we can't solve. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders who are making an impact in their businesses. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.seankgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, listeners. Today we have Tom Bowman. Tom is the uh, author of "What Is or What If Solving the Climate Crisis Was Simple," his new book, and we're excited to have him on the show. So, Tom, thanks for joining. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, no kidding. So, Tom, uh, you know, people may not know who you are, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I did a little research on this and I, and I got a, a brief bio for you and I'll uh, read it. But then I'd like to have you kind of just give us a little background about yourself. But uh, 
for sure. the listeners, Tom's a strategic advisor and a writing, writing team member, or he's the lead for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment, ACE Strategic Planning Framework. And he's the he's a founder of the Bowman Design Group and a, founding, a founder president of the Bowman Change, Inc., a consultancy that works on communication strategies with government agencies, business, and cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tom, thanks for joining. And um, tell us a little bit about uh, your journey, if you would, a little <laughs> bit about this book and what led you to write it. Yeah, this has been a long and winding road. Uh, and the book is in some ways a, a focal point, a culmination of a lot of things that happened. I started an exhibit design firm uh, back in the 1980s. So I've worked on air shows around the world, trade shows, did a big FIFA World Cup venue. And along the way, I was invited to design a museum for the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. And anybody in the exhibit industry who would say no to designing a new museum in Washington, D.C. would be, you know, it's time to go to the rubber room, I think. So, of course, I said yes. And the first project that I did was on climate science back in 2003. And I was... It was like going to grad school on an independent study basis with some of the finest minds in the country because, you know, the National Academies is the most uh, prestigious honor society for the sciences in the United States and possibly, you know, arguably the world. Right. So in 2003, I, uh, I, I left that project asking the, the main science officer for the project, how, what do you think about this? Cause it was, pretty concerning. And his attitude was, you know, we have time to figure this out and humans aren't stupid. We won't, we won't do anything so unwise as to allow unregulated climate change to proceed. Right. Two years later, well, three years later, I was invited to do another project, similar project at the Birch Aquarium, which is part of Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, down by San Diego. Love that place. And the attitude among the scientists had just spun 180 degrees on a pin Uh and it was because the melting of the arctic ice cap had accelerated dramatically that year and emissions because of economic development mainly in china were starting to go through the roof and and follow what had been called the worst case scenario up until that time so that you know that and the events surrounding that um led me to change my career path. I mean, I once I really understood where we were, I looked around myself and I thought, who else who does communications for a living really understands what the science is telling us? And the answer was, I couldn't think of very many people. It's a so, little complicated. Yeah. So I devoted the next few years to 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 building relationships with climate scientists and, and behavioral scientists, social scientists who research communication theory and public opinion Um, And I started a consultancy to work on projects about climate communication that didn't necessarily have anything to do with exhibits. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I found myself, because I'm an entrepreneurial guy, um, putting together, you know, bringing together combinations of experts who had never really been in the same room before. Um, twice, Twice I gathered all the the social scientists who studied public attitudes and and uh, spent a day with them or two days and found out, you know, sort of what can you advise the communication profession about this issue and wrote the reports. Um, another project that I did, I managed to com- to bring economists and policy policy experts and lawyers and climate scientists and social scientists and educators all together uh-huh. to master plan uh, an event that unfortunately the Great Recession 
sort of stopped in its yeah. track. But but these kinds of combinations of people lead to really amazing experiences. Yeah. No, that's that's great. I mean, so uh, for the listeners, let me just give this uh, a little. Uh, this is the book. Mm -hmm. uh, what if solving the climate crisis is simple? And here's the beauty of it. You know, look how it's about 100 pages long, right? I mean, it doesn't right. take too long to read. I was able to get through it in a weekend. And it really was, you know, quite, it was a page turner, I guess. You know, that's what I would say. It's a page turner. I, I, I kept reading. I was like, this is great. Um, so the big, the big question out of this was, is, you know, so are we too late to solve the climate crisis? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the title of chapter one. Yeah. And I figure we better get into this right away because we're constantly bombarded with depressing messages about climate change, right? right? CO2 emissions are going up or they're coming down some, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, the world is changing around us very rapidly. And the answer I come to, to that question is an emphatic no, of course it's not too late because right. the only cause of it is human behavior. And if the only cause of it is what we're doing, then the solution to it is to change what we're doing. And that right. means that the, the power to change is in our hands, not someone else's. Well, and that's, I mean, I, yeah, I, I love that because you're right. And it is, it is our, our power. So in the beginning of the book, you laid down some fundamental ex, uh, explanations of about, you know, why and how people respond to information based on mm -hmm. previous experiences. And you talked a little bit about, you know, the, the, the big, um, um, uh, tsunami that hit mm -hmm. you know Thailand and you know mm -hmm. the people's mental model and their reality of you know that prevented them from responding appropriately they didn't think there was gonna be a tidal wave coming you know taken right. out right? right so explain a bit how that in this this type of mental model you know may challenge our you know way of thinking from taking action yeah, yeah. so this I'm a I'm a mountaineer, and so I'm a big fan of the literature about what happens in the wilderness when people get into trouble. What happens uh -huh. in accidents? Who lives? Who dies? And and so I've done a bunch of digging into that, and and that literature sort of converges with literature on how people make decisions that is important for people in my business who do communication work. Right. And what what we discover is that you know, the human brain has evolved with really two systems for making choices. One is this deliberate analytical process that we use when we're making, you know, we use it a lot. And it, and it takes a lot of energy to, to think things through. Uh, and so it's not, it's not fast and it's not very energy efficient. Uh -huh. And evolution favors speed because if there's something breathing in the bushes next to you in the wild that might be a predator you don't have time to think it through right you've right. got to it's, it's, it's yeah it's a reflex yeah and so there's a process uh, and it's part of the emotional system that basically memorizes decisions that work well and and the assumption is that if it's been if it's worked in the past it's going to work in the future and it allows us to make decisions just in a in a heartbeat right right but what happens when we call those on those processes and when we use the mental models, it's basically an emotional feeling that's, that floods our bloodstream with chemicals that cause us, like adrenaline that cause us to react quickly. Um, but it's also a mental model that says, is it okay? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And those people I mentioned on the beach in Thailand, 
um, were tourists. And yeah. there was a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. that, And so the wave was coming toward them. And, you know, characteristically in a tsunami, the ocean is sucked away from the beach. And then it comes roaring back, right? Yeah. And these tourists are on the beach. You can see the videos on YouTube, and they're watching the the receded ocean, and they see this wave in the distance, and they're they're curious about it, and they're not alarmed. The locals aren't on the beach anymore, yeah. but some of these tourists are, and and it's because their mental models said, "I'm on vacation. It's a beach. It's yeah. sunny. This right. is a safe and wonderful, relaxing place." And their mental Why model be a problem, right? And it didn't allow them in, to to break out of that and actually see what was happening to them at the time. And some of those people didn't make it, obviously. That's right. Others did, and when and with a massive disruption, right? To those those mental models were essentially washed away, um, because what happens is your experience rewrites your assumptions. Yeah. So so when we when we when we learn to be um, not be hopeful about our future, it's worth asking: Am I am I relying on a mental model that's not not in my best interest? Well, I think you know, with the climate crisis, a lot of people haven't really you know thought it through. Like, you know, <laughs> is it really that bad? I mean, it seems normal to us now, right? I mean. Yeah, you can see some changes in the in the you know in the climate a bit. I mean, you know, it's it, it rains a little more or it's a little drier. Or mm -hmm. You get a little more snow in the winter sometimes, or I don't, or you know, whatever. But it, it's not so drastic. I don't think people are really like alarmed as much now. There are a yeah. lot of people who are very alarmed, right? I mean, right. But so in order to break this mental model, you know, what do we need to do to get get unstuck? You know, mm -hmm. what what do we need to change? You know, to yeah. Fixes. Well, let's talk a little bit about what our mental model is. Um, yeah. And then we'll talk about how to change it. And, it, and there's sort of two parts to it. One is, like I said, the past, we, we think the past is going to be the future, right? That's uh -huh. what our, unconsciously, that's what our brains are wired to do. And if it's a nice day outside or if the weather looks pretty benign, uh, the assumption is that that's going to continue as far as we can see into the future or certainly as far as we need to plan for. Yeah. Right. And climate change tells us that's wrong, but the weather outside is reinforcing the idea that it's right. So, right. so there's that. Yeah. The second thing is that we have been learning about the climate crisis from scientists for the last 30 or 40 years. And scientists are people, you know, God bless them for doing it. They study complicated global systems. They study uh -huh. the atmosphere and the ocean and the lithosphere and the cryosphere and the biosphere. And they, they're calculating and studying all the ways that those things interact to create what we call our climate system. And it's, it's global and it's local and it's complicated and yeah. that's what they do. And so they describe it in those kinds of terms. And when there's a discussion of what to do about the climate crisis to, to avoid the hardship that's coming right. our way. Yeah. The assumption is we, we end up talking about really complicated global human systems too, transportation systems and food production and supply chains and finance markets and international aid and development and governance from the local community to the nation, to the world and urban transportation, urban planning, waste management it just goes all on and on right stuff is huge right it's and overwhelming it makes, 
not only that, it all interacts with everything else. So right. if, you, if you said, I'm going to work on climate justice only, or I'm going to work on food, and you start pulling on that thread, this is like a Gordian knot of entangled systems, right? So you, you start pulling on one thread, and pretty soon other threads that are interacting with it are starting to come with it. And, and it's not long before you feel like you've got this whole planet in your hands. Right. It's, it, it's like it's all interconnected. It's like a matrix. It's right? like a matrix. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so how do you see through it? And the result is most people feel like it's too big for us, right? Yeah. That hopefully there are some technical elite people who study these systems and that they're going to figure out some kind of master plan for the rest of us. And they're going to solve the problem without us having to impact our own lives at all. And we just hope, and we sit on the sidelines and, and surveys show that, you know, about half of people in the United States think we could solve this problem. Only 6% of us think we actually will. Ah, so this is whoa. a pretty dispiriting yeah, we, circumstance, we up, right? Up that, right? We need, we need to do better than that. And, and so what we need to do is figure out how to disrupt this model. This model is called, um, scientists call this a wicked problem. It's a problem that's so complicated that it can't actually be solved. All you can try to do is manage it yeah. to the best of your ability and expect to take some lumps along the way. I can't think of anything more depressing <laughs> than, you know, we got the deck chairs on the proverbial Titanic and we can rearrange them a little and try to manage it, but the ship is still going down. And that's how so many people see this problem. And this yeah. is, this is the view we desperately want to disrupt because as long as we believe this, this is what we're going to allow to have happen. Yeah. I mean, people are like, it's a defeatist mentality. It's like, well, what the heck? I mean, what, what, what's the difference if I, you know, recycle my garbage or not? I mean, it's not going to make a big deal. You know, that's right. what people will think. Right. And so, so we are in the position of being the people on the beach in Thailand. We see a tsunami coming. The tsunami is called climate change. And the problem with it is in our minds, right? right? The, the problem, the reason we're not solving it is because we don't think we can. And uh, that's kind of what, I kept, I kept running into this over and over again in projects that I would work on ad campaigns and exhibits and films and, and over and over again in documentaries and books and interviews you hear at the end, you've described this immensely complicated, horrific future. Yeah. And then, and then people say, somehow we just must muster the will to overcome this. Right. Yeah. And everybody who's ever made a New Year's resolution knows <laughs> that willpower doesn't last all that long. Maybe 30 it, days if you're lucky. Right. It wears out. Right. It's like muscular strength. It wears right. out and you have to, to rest and recover. So what we really want to do is disrupt that model and wash it away and replace it with a model that allows us to actually make progress on, on solving this problem. So you asked, how do we do that? Well, um, there's a story in the book that I tell. I, I had an art professor in college. I was an art student and I was, I was working on a painting and it was one of those things you work on that just won't work, you know? And I kept trying new, new I'd try different colors. I tried shifting the composition. I'd try this, I'd work on the face better, you know? And it just wouldn't work. My first professor came up behind me and he said here's what you do hang it on the wall upside down uh -huh. and, and go home right 
because when you see it the next day, upside yeah. down, it yeah, disrupts yeah. all that you think about it yeah. and you're going to see it differently and you're going to know what to do. And I can tell you that this, that literally works really that well when you're works. dealing with something visual. Yeah. But when you want to apply it, the same rule applies when you want to apply it to a different kind of problem. The, the basic insight is that if every solution you're trying has something in common, a premise, a requirement, a, a, an assumption that's the same in every single one, try setting that aside for a minute and see what happens. And in my experience, what happens is you suddenly discover possibilities that were there the whole time. You just didn't realize they were there. Yeah, right. No, I like that. I like that. Well, talk a little bit about how, I mean, well, we already talked about how complex the climate crisis is and all the various contributions. I and mean, you kind of went through a litany of list of, you know, yeah, right. all the interest. <laughs> and, and it's it's massive. Uh, it is It is challenging to wrap your head around how everything's so interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were to boil down the issue to its most basic and fundamental issue, how do we solve the climate crisis? Right. Well, this is what happens when you set that wicked problem or Gordian knot of intertangled systems aside. What do you discover? You discover that in reality, we only have to do one thing. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are the driver essentially the singular driver of of global warming there's some other ancillary things too that are small percentages yeah they can be solved but the driver that matters is that we burn a lot of coal a lot of oil and a lot of natural gas so so the solution literally is to stop burning those things and and because we're so far down the road the science says we have to stop well before mid-century mid-century at the latest and we know we don't want to fail because if we do, the consequences are awful, right? right? So the mantra or the or the imperative that comes from this this different viewpoint is a very simple sentence. The sentence is stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. Right. No, I mean that sentence captures and distills it down into the most concise, I think, you know, way of stating how to prevent and to help change the mm -hmm. climate crisis. I mean, I, I've looked at this in other, you know, yeah. uh, with other, you know, articles and, 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 and listen to other people talk about it. And they're all coming up through, you know, coming about it, you know, in say, uh, well, we want to be more sustainable and we're going to reduce our carbon footprint and we're going to do, you know, uh, re we're going to start using alternative energy sources. Mm -hmm. and, and and those are all great, right? I mean, they are. But I think the fundamental piece of it is, is to do all those things, it's really getting to stop burning fossil fuel, right? I mean, because yeah. at the end of the day, those activities is what's going to be, you know, prevented. Right. And, and there's some psychological magic to form formulating it this way. Um, the organizations, corporations and others that have made rapid progress on any environmental goal have all used what's called a stretch goal. Yeah. And a stretch goal is a singular imperative and a com that seems impossible. I mean, if it doesn't sound impossible, it's not a stretch goal. And its companion component is that the, the CEO or whoever's in charge says, failure is not an option. We are not going to fail. 
Right. And that's what this formulation is. Stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century. Sounds to most people like, holy cow, that's how do how the heck do we do that? And absolutely positively do not fail. What happens when you accept a premise or a, an imperative like that right. is it causes us to look at the ordinary things we do as homeowner you know, in our households, in our workplace, as an organization, as a community, a, a city or town, as a country. It causes us to look at everything differently and it exposes opportunities that we don't normally recognize are there that are within our grasp. You know, you and I probably don't know how to reinvent the agricultural system of the world or to change the transportation system of the world, but we know how to manage our own shipping, right? And we know how to man how to open a window on a sunny day and get fresh air instead of running the heater or the air conditioner. Right. We know we know how to use daylight in our rooms. We know there there are all myriad ways we can modify the actions that we do in ways that reduce the amount of fossil fuel that we burn. Well, and, and I think, you know, one of the things I really liked about the book is that you really focused this mantra, mm -hmm. this, this statement, this premise here to the everyday person, mm -hmm. you know, you know, corporations are going to do what corporations need to do from a, you know, publicity or, you know, good citizens perspective to do that. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a big push from policymakers to really push, mm -hmm. you know, these types of change actions too, which will right. help and, and spur along the, you know, the advancement of these, you know, technologies and other you know, achievements. Right. But the personal, you know, engagement, the actual, you know, you know, take into heart this, you know, this, uh, you know, this mantra, you know, at an individual level is, I think, the key here because everybody can contribute, right? Well, yeah, and the, and there's something there's something else. We've been told that our personal contributions to to greenhouse gas emissions are so tiny that our behaviors don't matter, right? So yeah. if I buy an electric car instead of a diesel truck, it doesn't make any difference because it's only one car and one truck on the road, and there are millions of them out there, right, or hundreds of millions. But that's not how this works. <laughs> the way that this actually works is every time we adopt climate-friendly behaviors, and we talk about it, we talk about what matters to us, it creates new social norms, right? right. We're creating social the social support that allows all of us to believe in these things, to vote for these things, to make consumer choices this way. And it doesn't have to be complicated, and we don't all have to agree. I, I was I was at a conference once signing books for uh, uh, in in Atlanta. And a guy came in, he said, I'll take your book, but you're not going to take away my pickup truck. And I said, where do you live? He said, oh, I live out on a country road about 25 miles from here. I said, I don't want to take away your pickup truck. You need your pickup truck, right? Yeah. It's not about making everybody do exactly the same thing. It's about awakening in us an awareness that we have a common problem to solve. We can solve it together and that we can do the things that work in our own lives and we can vote for elected officials who will do the things that need to be done. Right. And it sort of it sort of establishes a stable baseline for all of our collective action. So so it's a very powerful dynamic between people. Yeah, no, and, and I think too, I mean, maybe you've noticed this, you know, through the pandemic. Um, you know, people are really being drawn to, you know, um, 
you know, be a part of something bigger than themselves, right? They, they really are trying to, you know, yeah. do something yeah. that they feel they can contribute to the better good. I think that there's so many more, you know, the younger generation of, of you know, people in our society that are coming, you know, of age, they're really driving decisions. They're really pushing the envelope mm -hmm. and wanting this type of environmental change uh, in, in, you know, in everything we do. I mean, if, you know, from consumer products to just, doing the right things. Right. I mean, I think they were seeing a huge shift. Yes. It's about protecting, it's about protecting their future, creating an environment that, that is still healthy for them. And it's also about social justice, you know, the climate, climate justice, because there's a huge discrepancy in who is suffering today and who's going to suffer tomorrow. It's mostly people of color and low income communities that are bearing the brunt of this. Yeah. We will, we will all suffer in time and we will all suffer to various degrees, but it's very, very disproportional even today. And so you're right. Young people are absolutely committed. They take it for granted that we need to be solving this. Um, and those of us who are older would be wise to listen to their voices. And, you know, sometimes we do, there's a, I, I was talking once with a, a non-governmental organization, a nonprofit that was focused on energy efficiency. And they said that the best success they ever had was when they had um, teenagers go door to door in the business district, asking business owners to swap to LED light bulbs. And who could say no to the kids, you know? Yeah, right. And, and, like, oh, and that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. And local business owners are, are, I've been a business owner for, 35 years now and business owners are really tuned into their communities because that's where they they derive their income. And so if their community is telling them, we want energy efficiency, we want climate friendly behavior, no more polluting. Right. Guess what the businesses are going to do. They're, They're not going to want to be the odd man out. Yeah. They don't want to have a bad sig a stigma against them. Yeah. Today's podcast is sponsored by Stephanie Miller, author of Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, The Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint. Stephanie's business, Zero Waste in DC, provides virtual webinars and talks for organizations committed to a sustainable future. Stephanie will virtually speak with you and your colleagues about how to quickly and painlessly reduce your carbon and waste footprints. Break up your Zoom fatigue and invite Stephanie to energize your team and learn how you can have an immediate impact on the environment. Stephanie also provides virtual individual household consultations. Ask her to do a recycling audit for you and your family. I highly recommend that you buy her book. It's a great read and provides practical applications for anyone that wants to implement new ways to become more sustainable. You can contact Stephanie via her website at www.zerowastendc.com or you can contact her via email at stephanie at zerowastendc.com and check her out on her Instagram account at zerowastendc. Tom, talk a little bit about your decision to take action with your own business, yeah. yeah, you started to really grapple grapple with this climate change, uh, and, and you know, talk about your uh, adaptive strategy or your stretch goals within your uh, your organization. Right. So, so um, we can talk about it later. But I had this moment of awakening that sort of shifted my whole my whole oh, yeah. path, uh, and so I was highly motivated to get involved in trying to awaken public participation in solving the climate 
crisis and shifting our culture. And since I owned a business, I thought, why don't I try an experiment? Why don't I try to decarbonize its operations and see how far I could get? Yeah. Um, I had a 2000 square foot house that was zoned in a business district and I had a dozen employees and I'm in California and California had a climate law called AB 32. We still do. Um, that said that, that had a target of 90% emissions reductions by 2050. This is based on 1997 levels. Uh, and it basically would meant, would mean eliminate carbon emissions economy wide in California by 2050. This was 2006. So I joined the climate registry to have our emissions verified every year. Right. It's not very expensive to do. And then I said, since I don't have capital equipment, I'm a design firm. It's like an office-based business, right? right? I have a company car that the owner drives. That's me. And we have an office with, you know, copiers and printers and plotters and lights and computers and the stuff you have in an office. Sure. And so I thought, um, I don't have to capitalize something over 20 or 30 years. So why don't I advance the goal? Why don't I say, I'm going to try to get to a 90% emissions reduction in 15 years by 2020, right? Okay. I presented that and I had big goals for water reduction and trash reduction and other things too. And I presented it at a, at a staff meeting and said, we're going to do this. We're not going to fail to do this. And my office manager looked at me and she said, are you crazy? And I, and I said, good, I got the right goal, right? Yeah, you got their attention. But I wasn't any more knowledgeable or smarter than anybody else. So what did I do? I called uh, a solar installer, and this was back in 2006, and they came out and they said, oh, we'll have to build you a carport because your roof faces the wrong way, and it's going to cost you $90,000. Oh. And, you know, I'm like, I'm spending $3,500 a year on electricity. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. I called an architect who I knew and said, what can I do? He said, well, your building gets hot in the sun in Southern California. Why don't you put four inches of foam on your roof and then a highly reflective metal roof on top of that, and that'll keep your you know, reduce your air conditioning needs. And so I got an estimate for that. It was $40,000. So that's a, okay. I can't do that. And I did trade my small SUV for a Prius uh, because it was the lowest emissions car I could get in 2007. Um, and then I just decided, I told the staff, here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to make every decision a green decision. This is, this became sort of our slogan, every decision a green decision. What it means is we make decisions every day about going to see a supplier, going to see a client, about building an exhibit, about um, how we're going to purchase something, right? We, we make decisions all the time. Let's add energy efficiency as a second top priority to every decision we're going to make. In other words, the business goal is still the goal but we're going to meet that goal in the most energy efficient way we can imagine right yeah. and that meant that for example our copier lease expired and and we could have bought it for a dollar but it was an old energy consuming thing and i said everybody wanted something more modern and full color and all that kind of stuff anyway i said okay decide what the machine has to do Go find one that's reliable, that will do what you need to do, and then find one that's got the Energy Star rating, right? Let's get the most energy efficient one we can get. We got it, and it was so good that we ended up 
decommissioning every other office machine and all our plotters. We stopped using them. Uh, our other, we, we shut off all of our um, printers at our desks. And, you know, one of the things that happens when you do that is that if you have to walk across the building to get your copy, you're just going to work on your screen. You're not going to print very often anymore, right. right? Right. And and so I thought we were making tiny progress. I didn't think we were doing very much. But we got our, our emissions report back a year and a half later. We had cut our, our what are called scope one and two emissions, which that's the electricity and gasoline and natural gas we were using in our business by two-thirds in 15 months. Oh. Just Two thirds and nobody was suffering. Nobody could tell. All we did was, was get rid of waste that we'd been paying for without noticing for years. Right. Yeah. And then it led to some other surprises. I mean, this is a story that will make your listeners think I'm a complete idiot and it's justifiable because we all are. Um, I had two employees. We were located in Long Beach, California, and yeah. two of them decided to move independently to uh, of each other all the way to Palm Springs. And they were commuting together a hundred miles through rush hour traffic to our office every day, five days a week, and then all the way back to Palm Springs. Oh my gosh. They and must really like to work for you. They, well, yeah, it was a good place to work, but, <laughs> but to do, put up with that, to do that to your life, yeah, to go to work is, is madness. Yeah. And, and yet we hit all, and then people would come to work and we had a, a main supplier who would build exhibits for us who was 60 miles away. So sometimes you'd hop in the car, drive 60 miles for an hour, have a meeting that might last long or short, who knows? And then you'd drive back to the office and then you'd commute all the way home, right? And I suddenly thought, I mean, we just lived with this. We didn't like it, but we lived with it and we thought it was normal because everybody seemed to do it. I said, well, why don't we try an experiment? You two guys only come in once a week. Stay in Palm Springs every other day. We'll work by phone. We didn't even have Zoom back then. We just right. worked by phone and uh, and email. And when people are going to go to the shop for a meeting, schedule the meetings whenever possible at the beginning or the end of the day. So your commute route takes you by the shop. And you don't make that two hours of driving in the middle of the day on top of it. And something amazing happened. It took it took about a month for people to get used to this. You know, it was a, it was a change. But all of a sudden, there was more laughter. All of a sudden, people weren't so tired. All of a sudden, people weren't putting in so much overtime to make up for the exhaustion that lost productivity during the week, you know. And, and that was a clue that this was working. Um, the other big clue is that we received a statewide award in California as a small business of the year for these emission, extraordinary emission reduction. And we issued a press release and two things happened. One, my biggest client called the next day and said, I, I'm calling to say how proud we are to work with a company that would choose to do what you did. That's great. It's like, wow, you know, you, nobody can buy advertising that good. Right? No. <laughs> the other thing is that the employees, um, took took a new sense of ownership in the business and started looking for ways to enhance our environmental performance because all of a sudden coming to work was more meaningful than it had ever been to them. And we all hunger for a sense of purpose and a sense of mission in our lives, you know? Yeah. And so by providing this, it, it shows that there's this in 
deep, deep wellspring of goodwill and desire to be solving these persistent, pernicious problems that we've been taught to believe we can't solve. So, you know, your, your example is like a microcosm of how, or, you know, a perfect example of how others can, can take this, you know, approach and mm-hmm. apply it in their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just a great story to listen to how you, you know, decided to take action and to make a big difference. And then like, like if everyone starts to do these little things, cause we're all, you know, cont- wanting to contribute, we're going to make an impact. I can tell you. Right. I mean, so yeah. How do we shift people's minds from the climate crisis is too big to fix to get them to engage and help them solve the problem and achieve this goal? The, um, the, the, the real trick, <laughs> this is going to sound so simple, but uh, when I was in, a, in this meeting, I told you about where I had scientists and social scientists, you know, behavioral scientists, economists, lawyers, educators, we were all talking about master planning this thing. And, and, we went around the room and everybody said, what is your real goal for this project? And I, I thought about it and I said, you know what my goal is for this? I want people to talk about climate change. Because yeah. when I would talk about climate change back in 2007 and 2008, it, it was a conversation stopper. You know, no yeah. one wanted to, no one wanted to be near you at a party. If you talk like, about, uh, he's talking about climate. I don't uh, know about this. Downer guy. this guy. Here he comes again, you know, he's a tree hugger. Watch out for him. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And I right. used to hear that stuff all the time, but the social science is really clear. The main reason we're not dealing with climate change very well is that we don't talk about it enough. In other words, right. somebody needs to break the ice. And, and I have a really good story about this that I write about in the book when we won that award, I was invited two years later to give a talk when the next group of, of awardees received their awards at this ceremony. And I decided not to talk like a business owner. Uh, you know, I decided not to use the language of business, which I don't particularly care to use anyway. Sure. I decided to talk about what it meant to me, what motivated me to do this, what it meant to me to achieve what we had achieved yeah. and how it changed the character and the quality of life in my company when we did. So it was a very personal, heartfelt story, yeah. right? Yeah. When I was done, one of the awardees asked if she could say a few words. So I handed the microphone to her and she told a very equally personal story of her own about what motivated her to do what she did. When she was done, the next guy said, can I have, a, can I say something? And he <laughs> He talked about his personal motivations for dues about his kids and about, you know, the, and all of that. Um, and the microphone just walked around the room from person to person. And it finally came to a guy, the last guy to speak. And he said, I just want to say how amazing it is for me to be in a business meeting where I can finally talk about the things I care about. Right. You know, this is the power of breaking the ice. And you get a bunch of business people together, entrepreneurs together, and you talk about your collective passion for solving social problems. You're going to find some, yeah, you're going to find some answers, right? It's it's talk about a shot of adrenaline in the arm. I mean, you walk out of that feeling like you're soaring on cloud nine. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of capacity just among us, wherever we live. Well, that's, that's, that's a great story. I'd love to hear that because... I mean, everyone's got a passion for solving these things. And I think mm-hmm. the more this co- this topic is, you know, being brought up in, in you know, in education, you know, in, in schools. I mean, like my daughter, both my daughters grew up in school kind of, you know, pretty aware of it. 
They're mm -hmm. in my old, my youngest is in college now and, and uh, she's really aware of it. She's taking sustainability classes in college, you know, in her business degrees. Oh, cool. And she's really, you know, like, this is important, dad. And she knows I do environmental consulting too. So, you know, <laughs> she's had a little bit of some uh, coaching along the way. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I look at this, you know, I, I have been looking at it from a climate perspective, like, you know, I, there's a lot of scientists out there uh, that really talk about one thing or another thing. And mm -hmm. what, which part do you believe in? I mean, you know, and, and I think the messaging, you know, out there is depending on maybe a political party you sit on is, is different, right? I mean, one's like, it's not so bad or it's really bad. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's, it, it's kind of in the middle somewhere, or, you know, maybe a little more is bad than it is good, but, you guys are really, really looking at the science, right? <laughs> the science says, well, the science says it's really, really bad, but there's really good reason to be hopeful. Now that's well, a, so, so the yeah, really, and so I want to, I want to zero in on the, the epiphany moment for you. Sure. Because sure. that moment in that you wrote in the book kind of just hit me or smack in the face that <laughs> it was like, Hey, Sean, you know, whatever you thought about climate, crisis and you know change before you know and i'd admit i'm probably ha i've been a little more on maybe the other side of not thinking it's that bad but mm -hmm. when you described it in your book i was like you know what this is a really a lot bigger deal and a lot more important and real than than people know yeah. so yeah. talk about the moment that you had in that meeting before you had to go meet your 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 client sure <laughs> Sure. Well, so the word epiphany comes from is used in religious context a lot, right? But but it means a sudden intuitive realization about something about reality. That's uh -huh. that dictionary definition. So I was in La Jolla working on this second exhibit in 2007, 2006. And, and they have this conference room high on a bluff on the second floor with floor to ceiling windows that overlook the Pacific Ocean. It is beautiful. Idyllic. It's gorgeous up there, right? So I'm right. sitting up there with the science curator for this project, and we're reviewing content and trying to and talking through what the we're gonna stories we're gonna tell in this exhibit. Right. And I and I mentioned to her just kind of in passing, you know, the the folks at the National Academies had said to me, pay attention to the oceans because water can absorb so much heat before temperature, water temperature starts to rise. Mm -hmm. That once we start to see warming in the oceans, we are gonna be committed to a changing climate for 500 to 1,000 years. That's too late. Getting a big flywheel moving, right? Yeah. She says, oh, we're part of Project Argo, which is this robot, 2,500 robotic floats sampling every ocean in the world. She said, we're part of Project Argo. We've already measured warming in every ocean basin in the world to a depth of a thousand meters. Now just think about that for a second. Stop, stop everybody and listen to that. A thousand meters. Three, more than 3,000 feet deep, right. covering four-fifths of the earth has already warmed. I mean, and it's warmed, it's got, it's absorbed so much heat that temperature has actually started to rise in the water. And that, that was the moment for me when everything I knew about the, the impacts of climate change that, that I had thought were in the future came home to roost 
all at once. I mean, it was like they were something, a predator was alive in the room with us. It's what it literally physically felt like. And you're like, I'm going to die with this knowledge now. (laughs) Well, so, so, I mean, we're talking about sea level rise and coastal flooding and dislocations of communities and, and rural populations. We're talking about heat waves and heat stress and parts of the world becoming unlivable because they're so hot and dry and drought and wildfire and crop failures and, and violent conflict and the collapse of civil societies because people are you know, on the move and they're, they're becoming you know, large numbers of climate refugees and all of it, all of it sort of blossomed in my consciousness at the same time. And I thought we're already on the doorstep of this. And I was, it was, I mean, I just sort of was my role. Your mind wasn't ready to go talk to the person you had to go talk to. Her next, her next comment was my boss wants to meet you now for the first time. And (laughs) if you've anybody who owns a business knows when you go meet your client for the first time, yeah, you're going to be, you want to be cool. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You want to be prepared and just yeah, look at good and sharp. Not, and it's not a good. problem. There are ways to deal with any problem. Don't worry. We're going to work this out. I walked into her office and I was, I mean, I was literally physically trembling and I sat down across from her and she, she chatted about the exhibit a few minutes and then she looked at me and she said, is there something you want to ask me? And I said, <laughs> and she was a science, she's an ocean scientist, right? I said, yeah. How do you cope with knowing what you know? And I mean, I, just when I say that, the full power of that moment always comes back, right? Now, did she and, know exactly what you were kind of getting at? Oh, about yeah. The temperature, the, the warming of the ocean when you asked well, that question like that? I don't know if she, she probably didn't know about that exchange I'd had with her, with the curator. But she's a, she's a earth scientist. She knows, yeah. she knows the science, you know, deep down. And, and she just sat back and she said, oh. And we started to have a conversation about the value of doing an exhibit. And, and, and she said things to me like, you know, it, the question is, how many other species are we going to take with us? You know, <laughs> I mean, this, is, this was the scale of the, I mean, the threat of climate change is, is so monumental. It's, it's a little bit hard to fathom. And all you have to do is think about this. Every human community is located in a place where the climate supports it. Every species has evolved in an ecosystem that's adapted to the climate in that local spot. If all of that changes, what happens to us, (laughs) right? We don't live in the right places. We don't, plants can't migrate quickly. Trees can't migrate quickly. That means that the the ecosystems that support the birds and other animals that live in the forest um, are gonna run out of places to be. So, so the imperative to stop this is it's like being in one of those wilderness disasters where people have to figure out how to survive when, when everything has gone wrong. Right. And it calls upon those of us who have the wherewithal to do it, to find ways to lead because, um, because that's what we, that's what we need. Well, that's, what's needed. We, we have to, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. we're going to survive. Um, exactly. I mean, that, that, that was just pretty, um, you know, important. Uh, when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, it was uh, just a pretty dramatic uh, conversation in part of the book. I was like, wow, well, we got to talk about that one. Yeah. Um, I'd like yeah, to kind of get in. 
Go ahead. Well, I'd just like to say it is my fervent hope that, and it's my belief that that not everybody has to go through that. You know, I rode an emotional roller coaster about this for a number of years, and and as I worked with experts, I realized that as one scientist said, you know, I. Uh, I'm happy on Monday and hopeful Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I'm pessimistic Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and Sunday is up for grabs, you know, and uh, and I saw that so many people who really knew this material were were feeling that way. Um, if you're willing to, if this happens to you and you're willing to dive into it and just go with it, that's the way to deal with it because it because you'll find your inner strength, you'll find and you'll find support from a community of others who are just as committed to this as you are. And that is worth its weight in gold. But I don't think everybody has to go through that. We can, right. we can adapt to the changing climate and we can stop emissions without everybody having to go through an experience that's that emotionally charged. And thank goodness, because an awful lot of people would not like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure it was pretty traumatic. I mean, you just knowing what you you found out and, and wrestling mm -hmm. with that over the time, and which obviously it's emboldened you to, mm -hmm. you know, write this book and, mm -hmm. and other, you know, publications. I Okay, listeners, do you sometimes feel like you need additional training to improve your performance so that you can start crushing it? Or maybe you just want to advance in your career and become a real success, but just don't know how. Well, look no further. Mark Hernandez has over 20 years of experience in the industry and is an independent certified John Maxwell speaker, trainer, and coach. Mark dishes out high energy and impactful motivational keynotes and workshops for organizations on leadership. And take it from me, if you want to level up and create a culture of high performance, Mark provides engaging exercises with practical applications that can immediately be applied to deliver success. Visit Mark's website at www.markspeaks.co to download your free leadership packet. That's www.markspeaks.co. You can also schedule Mark to speak at one of your next events from his website as well. If you book a future event with Mark before the end of the year, you can save 20% by using promotional code ETNATION. That's right. You can save 20% by using promotional code ETNATION. So what else do you have to lose? Contact Mark today. Now you, you've been, you've been, you know, you become this leader in this this uh, climate crisis, uh, you know, change that's going on in, in our country. Talk a little bit about what it means for the U.S. to rejoin the Paris Agreement in addressing climate crisis. Yeah, this is huge. Um, the Biden-Harris administration is is coming right out of the gate doing doing more on climate change than any previous administration has. Um, they have they really get it that that. that now, part of the reason they get it is that it's it's four years, you know, after Obama, and that was eight years after Bush, and and so time is flying, and we need to to take action. But they have they have really embraced this, and they have seen that that there is a a happy opportunity here that that we improve health as soon as we reduce emissions. We reduce childhood asthma and trips to the emergency room and lost productivity. They've uh -huh. discovered that climate justice and climate action can go hand in hand so we can improve social capital and equity 
and and justice for all and live the ideals that we that we as a nation hold they've discovered that we can rejoin the international community by joining the paris agreement rejoining the paris agreement and instead of being a pariah among nations we can we have the potential to become a leader on this issue and we can we can create millions of jobs and bolster our economy as we come recover from the covid economy and the covid crisis um, we can build back a greener economy that is going to improve our climate for everybody while shifting us to a new economy that provides good paying jobs for people and and improves our health so so they really get it and and one of the things you know the, the appointments of Gina McCarthy and creating a domestic climate policy office is huge and then hiring John Kerry as the climate envoy who helped so much to negotiate the Paris agreement and giving him a seat on the National Security Council these are really really big steps yeah no i mean yeah cuz they were pretty involved early on through the obama administration trying to you know get us in, in, into that agreement and, and participating and being a leader mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. um <clears throat> We'll talk a little bit about your involvement with the Action for Climate Empowerment, the ACE yeah. Strategy Planning Framework, and how, yeah. how did that get started and how, how did you get involved with that? Because <laughs> that was, if I, the way I read it in the book was that's, a, that's the ACE is a strategic planning framework that is supposed to be developed by our federal government as we are participating in the Paris Agreement and, and the, the UN, right? Yes, and it kind of largely never really got put together uh, over, you know, well ever since we joined, really, and and sound like no other nation's really done it either. And all of a sudden, we've got a whole group of, you know, volunteers that are experts and subject matter experts in, in the business that want to put this this framework together. So we like say, here, uh, you know, Biden administration, here, climate justice, you know, warriors, here's here's the <laughs> Here's the plan. Here's the playbook. Yeah, I mean, I wish it was that simple. It's almost that simple. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so the Paris Agreement it grows out of something called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's a that's a treaty, a global treaty, that says we're going to hold emissions below dangerous levels. And Article Six of that it says is ACE, Action for Climate Empowerment. And the premise of ACE is that we need to engage the public of every nation as active participants in finding and implementing solutions to the climate crisis. In other words, governments shouldn't try to have to do this alone. We need the mm -hmm. people involved. Right. And as you said, no other major emitting country, uh, th those who are at the top tier of emissions, including the United States, has ever come up with a national strategy to do that. But every nation that has there's a party to the to the Paris Agreement has agreed to do it. It's not a requirement of the treaty. The treaty urges countries to create national strategies, um, but but the treaty is structured to urge nations to do all kinds of things. So, <laughs> so there is a, an implicit obligation for the United States to come up with, and think about this, a national strategy to get all of us engaged in solving the climate crisis in whatever ways work in our communities and in our professions and in our lives, right? So, so a group of people who have colleagues who have been involved in various aspects of this work for decades um, began to coalesce at the beginning of last year and 
and got together and decided, you know, we can't create a national strategy for the United States without the federal government doing it. But the federal government might change because 2020 was an election year, you know, and it might have been, we didn't know, but it might have been Trump's last year and a Democrat's first year, as which is in fact exactly what's happened. So, so throughout the year, I was recruited to be the lead writer, but also to be a strategic advisor on a small team of about a 10 or 12 coordinating team that was trying to put this together. Uh -huh. And and when we looked at ACE, the elements of ACE are education, public awareness, public participation in decision-making, workforce development and training for, for jobs and for leaders, um, international cooperation, and public access to information. Those sound like bureaucratic sort of categories. What it said to us is, you know, the problem we have is that everybody works in their silo. Scientists work in the science silo. Social scientists are in the social science silo. Youth activists are working in youth activism. Politicians are in their bubble. Um, um, climate justice and indigenous leaders are working on climate justice and, in, and indigenous rights. We need to get everybody together because the way this really works is if people are ex building trust, sharing yeah. knowledge, right. learning from one another. And so there is a process within the UN that the UN has embraced called the Talanoa Dialogue. It's a, it's a Fijian word. It's a kind of dialogue where everybody's equals. You leave your rank at the door, you leave your logo at the door, uh, you leave your social role at the door, and you dialogue with your partners as if we're all equals, because we are equals, and you share stories and knowledge and, and we come to common decisions together. So we embrace this. 150 people were involved who are experienced uh, leaders in youth movements, indigenous movements, um, indi climate justice movements with people of color and gender, uh, science, social science, local government, um, communication strategy, really broad range, education, really broad range of skills and life experience at, at you know, national scales to the sure. most local community scales. Right. And so, so we had a series of dialogues and then we broke into focus groups where people could work with six or eight other people and, and reporters captured everything that was said and it was synthesized. And we wrote this up as a, as a, roughly 50 page statement that describes the value of having a national strategy and how it sits in the international agreement. And then it talks about a vision for where the public should be 20 years from now. And then what we have to do 10 years from now to get there, five years from now to get there, two years from now to get there in great detail about, about education policy and tr workforce training policy and government right. procurement policy and support for low-income communities so they can participate in decision-making and on and on and on. And it was an utterly transformational experience for the people who were involved because for the first time ever, I think for the first time ever, uh, such a broad group of people who have real experience came together and, and we all saw just how much capacity our country already has to solve this problem if we can create a strategic alignment and be more strategic about how things are funded um, so that so that all of this work can grow in scale and grow in its collective impact. So so we have 400 signatories to this report. It's it's been extensively reviewed. 
Um, we've written it up into a new book that has commentaries by leaders um, in various communities. Try to That's get right. That's camera. your new book, Empowering is, Climate Action in the United right. States. And Deb Morrison and I are the, we call ourselves the editors because we did the writing, but we don't consider ourselves the authors because the real authors are the people who are 150 people or more who are doing right. this work every day. They contributed um, to the whole conversation there, right? They provided the content, yes. Yeah. And and what they provided is breathtaking. It, it You read this and you go, like, holy cow, we can solve this problem in, in just a few years if we if we align strategically this work if we create the policies if we essentially have these people help create the policies that will move us forward rapidly well so, that, that's great i mean so i i heard uh, i talked with tim ward you know mm -hmm. uh, the publisher of the resetting our future book series that's right and he told me that uh there's so much interest in this book I mean, it's like the number one bestseller in, on the Amazon <laughs> store in the well, environmental that. arena, well, right? It, it launched number one in the green business category of all There places. you go, right? Um, yeah. Congrats. So thank you. Thank you. What we're working on now is is trying to get briefings with the, the administration, working every avenue we have. The thing is that there's so much motivation for this among the people who created it. Yeah. that nobody on the coordinating team wants to let that die. You know, right. we all see the potential to enhance the work that we've all been doing for a long time on people's behalf. And, and the, the key to this that, that makes it so exciting is that it's not like the government's expect, we expect the government to come in as the, as the savior on a white horse. You know, the, the goal of this is to empower local communities and right. local community groups to do to find solutions that work for them. It's not it's not an a, an imposition of rules by somebody else. It's an empowering of the intrinsic experience and interests of local communities all over the country. And they're not all going to be the same. And that's the beauty of it. Right. right? I mean, if, everyone's gonna have a little different need, right? Yeah. If you live in urban San Francisco you're what you're interested in and your needs are different than if you live in Odessa, Texas or in rural Alabama yeah. or in New York city. So, yeah. so yeah, so there's, there isn't a one size fits all. There is an empowerment of the, of the shoe that fits wherever you are. You just want to see, have the federal government come in alongside the communities and help them implement the strategies that they are trying to, you know, right. identify that's that's best for them right i mean now what's your take on some of the policies that need to be kind of uh, to help to help spur this along a bit i mean I, you know, individuals well, so, will only do so much mm. you know we're kind of lazy at yeah. times right i mean if we're if there's a little nudge in some aspect of this is that a good or bad thing do you think no it's a it's a good thing and let me give you an example of some of the recommendations that grew out of this for example in workforce training, for the most part, the people who can do workforce training are the people who have enough resources to take the time off to go get it, right? Uh -huh. And so if, you, if you're a low-income worker, you live in a low-income community, if you don't have good access to the internet um, because you live in a rural community, there's a barrier. There are a bunch of barriers that keep you out of it. So, so one thing that the federal government can do quite easily is, is make climate training part of every contract that the government lets. 
So if you want to be a government contractor, you want the big money to build whatever it is that they're that you're going to build or provide whatever you're going to provide, there could be a requirement that you provide workforce training. And if it's beyond the scope of your talents, you can provide uh, opportunities for training you in combination with community groups that surround you, you know, right. or in your profession so that the people who build things learn more about energy efficiency and things like that. And we learn more about climate justice. We learn about more about uh, uh, justice sensibility. We used to, there's a very strong justice lens in this work because it says that equity and effectiveness are one in the same really. Uh -huh. So, so those are, you know, that's an example of a kind of policy. There's a recommendation that school districts have a, a integrate climate uh, uh, knowledge, climate education, and climate justice education in every field of study in their curriculum. So it isn't just about science anymore. It's about social studies. It's about Home all, it's about <laughs> art. It's about yeah. everything so that it becomes, you know, part of a pervasive um uh, a part it's a of holistic approach to life, right? You, right. And it's about finding, using, improving their evaluation methods and being more rigorous about it. So we figure out which programs are working really well and what makes them work really well, and then create processes that allow other communities to learn from that and to embrace those things and allow the philanthropic community and the government funding community to support the things that are working well in a way that works for them. For, for example, the government, National Science Foundation, NOAA, NASA, they, they occasionally um, issue grants for climate programs for the public, and they issue grants for pilot projects. So everybody right. does a pilot project, and you figure out which ones work really well, and then you can't get any money to go to scale with them, right? Yeah. So we're reinventing the wheel, and we're not, we're not capitalizing on the things that we've learned. The philanthropic community, the private philanthropic community doesn't really see that as clearly as they could. And there is no agreed upon strategy for how to spend money. So they all have their own vision for how to spend money. Yeah. And, and all of what all of this means is that a lot of very effective groups don't have access to grants and, and a lot of grant money is spent less effectively than it could be. So this national strategy could sort of pull this together and and get everybody going in the same direction so that collectively we're much, much more effective. Well, that, that's that's great. I mean, I'm seeing now, you know, uh, private industry and corporations mm -hmm. really driving similar type of concept with the federal government. If you want that contract with NOAA, you know, you have to start incorporating climate, you know, change or. Right. initiatives in your in your work well the private industry is doing it now you know i've got a couple of clients that i work for and you know their their big mission statement is you know 2035 zero net carbon uh and mm -hmm. so we want you to identify you know every possible emission saving you know uh, task technology right. uh function that you do and capture it and report on it and it's like wow that's you know industry is getting yeah. wise to this they're getting savvy mm -hmm. they want to be good uh, corporate citizens and uh they're pushing it and I, that's this is a big shift in in you know our it culture is. no it really is and uh, you know I remember in 2007 2008 i met with the ceo of a sugar company and he had just told his department heads at every division of the company that they had to come to their annual retreat 
prepared to make a presentation about how they were, were going to reduce carbon emissions in their operations. And I said, why did you choose to do this? He said, well, look around. We're farmers. If the climate changes, we're out of business. Right? Yeah. This was, he was it's ahead fundamental of his, to him. He was ahead of his time in 2008. But now the investment community, um, you know, BlackRock issues an annual letter to CEOs that, that says, hey, we're going to value your business based on your climate plans and your climate vulnerabilities, not just your current, you know, your current balance sheet. Um, so there's a lot changing. And, and Biden's decision to rapidly shift the federal vehicle fleet to all electric. That was know, big. That's gonna, and that's going to drop the prices of electric vehicles dramatically and make put them within easy reach of so many more consumers. And it's going to shift us away from internal combustion engines much faster than the market would do it on its own. So all of these things are setting up market forces that basically change our lives, you know, yeah. in the background and, and we just adapt to it and, and our lives are better. 10 to 15 years from now, we'll have this huge technology shift into this type of, you know, way we live, you mm -hmm. know, from electrification of cars and vehicles yeah. and hydrogen is going to be a big player in this conversation, solar, Could wind, mm -hmm. all those alternative energy sources will be the biggest, you know, topic and companies really, you know, standing behind their commitments and not greenwashing stuff, right? I mean, they're going to really be like, okay, we want to figure this out. We're going to commit to actually tracking greenhouse gas emissions from a life cycle perspective and, and, and have a better understanding of this. Because right now, there a lot of companies have no idea how to even do it yet. I mean, they're just kind of like, I, I kind of know, but I don't, you know. So yeah, there, there, are, there are systems in place. I joined the Climate Registry. They're one of the measurement uh, bodies. They're a nonprofit. Um, and there are others that... that there are there are also you know uh, firms companies you can pay that will that will measure and verify your emissions. Yeah, and there's a much much more sharing of knowledge about how to reduce emissions. The first book I wrote was for the exhibition industry, trade shows and all, about how to reduce emissions in that industry. Um, but there are equivalents all over the place. So yeah. this stuff is is really it's, it's getting, starting to gain momentum. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well. Yeah, this has been a, a great, a great interview, Tom, and I really appreciate your time. So, you know, I hear you got this new book coming out. When when is it coming out? And then how do people get a hold of your existing book now? You know, what if yeah. solving the climate crisis was simple? Um, you can go to TomBowman.com, my website, and, okay. and it's right there on the front page. Uh, and click on it, and it'll take you to a page where you can look for lots of purchase, uh, purchasing options. But both of these books, that one and Empowering Climate Action in the United States, both part of Resetting Our Future, are available at resettingourfuture.com. They're at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Apple Books. They're eBooks. They're Kindle Books. Um, they're going to be hard to miss. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting your new book coming out. I did pre-order. And, uh, you know, I, I read the other one and, um, you know, Tim Ward uh, put together a, a fantastic group of authors. He really for that Resetting Our Future book series. I, I couldn't be more happy to, you know, get digging into all these books. They're just fantastic. Yeah, it's a and when you hear everybody together speaking, it's like, holy cow, this is an amazing group of people to be with. It's a, oh. it's an honor to be part of it. 
No, I totally agree. You, you're the third person that I've interviewed, part of the book series. Um, first one was Stephanie Miller and Tim and now yourself. And uh, just really glad to, to meet you and uh, get you on the show. Um, looking forward to getting some feedback from people. We'll push this out to social media and uh, I'll please, you know, share it with your people and uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure, sure stay in touch. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been such a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, thanks a lot for joining and we'll talk to you soon. I want to thank our guest, Tom Bowman, the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about Tom and get a copy of his new book, visit www.tombowman.com or from the Resetting Our Futures website at www.resettingourfutures.com or from other social media outlets. We'll also put a link to his contact information on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you've enjoyed the podcast episode, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating and tell your friends. I would also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future podcast topics that you want me to cover. Thanks for listening. And until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today. Thank you.